Thank you, praise team. <clears throat> Thank you to my brother Stephen for preaching the Word for us last week. That was the first time I ever got to be a recipient of the Word, and I enjoyed it. Uh, Stephen, uh, I'll actually be referencing some of the things that um, he said. Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Before we start, before we read, before I have you stand, I'm going to basically, this is a very simple passage, it's, it's super deep, I don't even know what Stephen said, but I loved it. It was about, uh, it's like a basically a, what did you say Stephen, about how, how to describe John's theology? It's a pool where a child can wade and an elephant can swim. I love it. I love it. When you're not around, I'm going to steal that and act like I came up with it. Um, whatever he just said, it applies to this passage too. And this is really the, the point of his message, if I could whittle it down, it's this. There is no other way to behold the glory of God than to know the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other way. There's no other way to see God, to come before God, to be in the presence of God, to behold the glory of God, than to know the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. So without any further ado, if you'll stand as we read John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Holy Spirit says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let us pray. Father, through this text this morning, kindle our desire to see You. Kindle our desire to behold Your glory. Father, show us vividly how far we have fallen short and show us, just give us a glimpse, Father, of how deep the well of your mercy and grace goes for those who would believe in Jesus. And all these things we ask in your Son's name. Amen. You know, I was listening to a U.S. Senator this week which is ironic. This is before the shutdown. This might have been leading up to the shutdown. Um, he was talking about all the problems that were going on in Washington, in our country, and how it was so-and-so's fault. I'm not going to give his name. I'm not going to say who he was blaming. But it certainly wasn't his fault in his mind. And then conveniently, he proceeded to travel back in time just a decade or two ago, to a time when apparently we didn't have the problems that he was talking about now. C.S. Lewis would call that uh, chronological snobbery, is what he would say. 
And it occurred to me, if there's one thing we all have in common, generations talking, okay? If there's one thing every single generation in America has in common, it's we all know how to be really nostalgic. Do we not? We all know how to hearken back to this mythical golden age where we seemingly didn't have the problems back then that we do now. And most of the time, nostalgia is, you know, it's funny and it's harmless. Like, I remember when gas was a quarter. That's called nostalgia. Or, I remember when I used to have to walk to school uphill both ways. Actually, I heard this one say that the other day. I remember when Newton County was nothing but a cattle pasture. Okay. I actually heard a guy, this was actually Baton Rouge, I heard a guy one time complaining that the roads were paved. He actually wanted to go back to rock roads. You know, I, you, could, you could come up with anything. Okay, I, I remember when UGA won national championships, that kind of stuff. Or, or I remember when Georgia Tech won a game. Or something like that. It's just whatever. You know. It gets all of us, you know. I don't know if I should throw stones being a UK fan. We laugh at those kinds of things. And you hear them all the time. And if you're young and you're listening, you will do that. You will. You roll your eyes at the older folks. You, there will be a time where someone will roll their eyes at you. For talking about how good it was back in 2025. Nostalgia, though, can sometimes be detrimental. And dare I say, even sometimes sinful. Most of the time, it's harmless and it's funny. But the kind I'm talking about actually glosses over our understanding of the gospel and it harms our view of the gospel and of God's grace. And what I'm saying is, at no point in time, in no generation in history, did people need Jesus any less than they do today. No time. And if you don't believe that, then you have a warped view of human goodness. So just in case you're clinging to a bit of nostalgia, I thought it'd be fun to lovingly squash it in the next two minutes. So here we go. I thought, let's start out with 25 years ago. Did, were we better people 25 years ago? And so I... Th- Thought, you know, because today you hear, well, the one thing I hear all the time is that darn internet. It's ruining America. It isn't it? I mean, internet's the worst. When we didn't have internet, we were better people. And now we got this Me Too movement. People are, are abusing women. We didn't have that 25 years ago. Well, actually, in 1991, that's 27 years ago, the Wall Street Journal. Not Christianity Today, the Wall Street Journal ran an article called The Joy of What? And this is what it said. Quote, unquote. The United States has a drug problem and a high school sex problem and a welfare problem and an AIDS problem and a rape problem. None of this would go away until more people in positions of responsibility are willing to come forward and explain, in frankly moral terms, that some of the things people do nowadays are wrong. They said that in 91. That's like they're looking in a crystal ball, if, you, if I had to say. 
said that in 1991. Okay, so some of y'all are going, well, yeah, I'm in the 90s, man. I was still like 40 years old then. Well, what about 50 years ago? I've heard some people say, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't have this problem. Well, in the light of Sanctity of Life Sunday, I, thought, I found this one. How many people, raise your hand if you heard of W.A. Criswell. If you're Southern Baptist and you haven't, shame on you. This guy was the president of First Baptist Dallas. He was twice elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He actually started his own college, Criswell College. He said this 50 years ago. I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. W.A. Criswell, president of the Southern Mass Convention, said that 50 years ago. So let's not hearken back and think that we've always fought for right to life, because we haven't. So then I thought, what about what Dad always told me, which was the greatest generation... I want to go back to the 1930s, to the war, the depression. Maybe then they were better people. Well, in the 1930s, I found this quote from an evangelical pastor. He said this. This is the 1930s. In the old days, which I don't know when that would be, I guess the 19th century, people went to preachers for consolation, information, and inspiration. They still come to us for consolation, but go to the newspapers for information and inspiration. 1930s said that. In the 1930s, pastors were complaining that people didn't read their Bible. Can you believe that? Complaining they didn't come to church. Okay, then I finally thought, okay, we just need to go back to the founding fathers. Because, of course, that's where it all started, was it not? That's the golden age. If anything is the golden age, we need to go back to uh, the 18th century is what we need to do. So I found this quote by Cotton Mather in 1720. Y'all just looked at each other like you knew who that was. That's impressive. He wrote this about the state. Someone asked him about the state of pastors in the colonies. This This is 50 years before independence is what he said. And shall they who call themselves Christians and would be honored as ministers of the Christian religion preach as if they were ashamed of making the glories of Jesus the subject of their sermons and so rarely introduce Him as if it were an indecent stoop to speak of Him, God forbid. I make no doubt of it that the almost epidemic extinction of true Christianity in the nations that profess it is very much owing to the inexcusable piety of overlooking the glorious Christ, so much in the empty harangues which often passes sermons. 1720, talking about how liberalism sneaking into America. I mean, my goodness, if you could show Cotton Mather Lakewood Baptist Church in Houston, I don't know what he would do. My point is this. Do you start to see how when we talk about the quote-unquote good old days, little misinformed. Do we really even need American history to prove the point. What about human history? In Genesis chapter 6, just six chapters into the Bible, 
Moses writes, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we know what happened next. That's chapter 6. That's six chapters after man was made. Church, my point is this. After Adam rebelled against God and we plunged into darkness head first, there has never been a time on this earth when human beings did not need the full measure of God's truth and grace. Ever. We dare not travel back to 91 or to 1970 or to 1930 or to 1720 or even to Genesis 6 and think that somehow we have improved the human condition. When it's about the price of gas, it's funny. But when it's about how we're not as sinful as the next generation, that's called arrogance in my mind. Not one single person in the history of the world, excepting one, has any righteousness or goodness or holiness or love in their hearts apart from grace. Not one. From the first sinner to the last, we need to be rescued, y'all. We have fallen away from God. We have been kicked out of paradise. We've been banished from the presence of God. We live in a world with evil, genocide, murder, jealousy, coveting, bitterness. We are subject to darkness, injury, blindness, ignorance, what have you. God is far away from us. We are far away from Him. And to add to the fact we don't even want Him. We are wallowing in our filth and in our condemnation. In John chapter 3, He's going to tell you the reason we don't want the light is because we don't want the light. And then we come to verse 14, and it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not, we finally got right with the Word and dwelt with Him. Not, we eventually got enlightened and dwelt with the Word. No, here's what it says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to us, to the rebels, to the coveters, to the idolaters, to the insurrectionists. It's almost too good to be true. I mean, what kind of unchanging eternal God would create a good universe, be disrespected, dishonored, Betrayed by the supreme image bearers that He put in charge of everything who walked away from Him and decide to love us, take on fallen flesh, and dwell among us and die for Him, for the people that He loved. Stephen said last week, He came to His own, the very people He created, and they did not receive Him. You know, in these five verses, the word grace comes up four times. The love we've received from Jesus, it doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with God. It costs us nothing. And it costs Jesus everything. Verse 14, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John wants us to know that God is bursting at the seams with grace. He's full of it. The word for dwell in verse 14 is eskinosin. It means to tabernacle or to pitch a tent. So what John is saying is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
Just like in the wilderness when God dwelled behind a veil in the tent of meeting. Do you all remember that? Exodus chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put it in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with a veil. You see, God is doing the exact same thing in Jesus as He's doing in the Old Testament, except instead of a tent, God actually came down in flesh so that we didn't need a veil, we could actually behold His glory face to face. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He rules the world with truth and grace. The very breath of God, the wisdom and power of God that spoke a billion galaxies into existence simply by the vapor of His breath is now standing so close to them they can touch Him. I mean, you talk about grace abounding. I remember when I was a little kid... The national championship Kentucky Wildcat team came through Owensboro to the local high school gym. Oh, man. You bet, like, every kid wanted to get there, you know. I'm trying to remember who was on that team. And uh, Y'all wouldn't know or care, really. But they were a big deal in Kentucky. We don't have football, obviously, so basketball is the only thing. And I was trying to teach somebody the other day, we don't have pro teams. Y'all don't get to complain. Okay, y'all got the Falcons, y'all got Atlanta Braves, you got, well, no one really likes the Hawks, but some of y'all do. We don't have that in Kentucky. There's no pro team. Kentucky Wildcat basketball is it. And I remember they came through town, and we got to, like, watch them play and watch them dunk, and they were, like, throwing off the backboard, and they were signing autographs, and you get to shake their hand and get their picture. I mean, it was like, for, for a kid growing up in Kentucky... It was amazing. I couldn't believe that they were there in the gym. And my dad was the PE teacher. I mean, I grew up just tossing balls in the hoop like my whole life in that gym. And here are the Kentucky Wildcats who would go on to be like Boston Celtics, Lakers. They were like right there. And I'm like, I mean, I'm just a little kid. These guys who I had posters on my door, I'm shaking their hand. I mean, just imagine the biggest Georgia sports fan you know finally getting to meet like Herschel Walker. That's how it was for me. <coughs> then multiply that by a thousand and imagine a Jewish man or woman who grew up every single day reading God's holy word, memorizing it, reciting it, talking about it, committing their life to it, and now that very word is standing right in front of them and he says that he loves them and wants to save them. And then you have an idea of what John means when he says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. So John's been telling everybody, this guy ain't a prophet. He's the eternal Word of God. Then verse 16, here we go. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. If you have like a little highlighter, just put it right there. My friend Brad Gray is here this morning. He's a dear brother. Um, 
Brad, it's weird that we met on the internet because we've been friends for years. First time we've ever met. I think I've told somebody before, Kelly is the reason I started writing. You're the reason people actually started reading it. Um, Brad is the one that got me introduced with Majesty's Men and the blogging sites. You're probably the only person I know that writes more than I do. Um, Brad is from Fort Lauderdale area. Um, And Brad, I have a blog that no one reads. It's called Vernacular. You have a blog that people actually read. What is it called? Grace Upon Grace. Grace Upon Grace. It's amazing I'd be preaching this as you're here. What a fantastic name for a blog. Grace Upon Grace. And your entire point is, the gospel is everything. A lot of people believe that John is talking about just heaping on grace. And he is. But in some sense, he's also talking about the fact, for example, the Greek word for upon is epi, but that's not the word that John uses. He uses the word anti. So a lot of scholars translate this grace for grace, or the Holman Christian Standard actually says grace after grace. However you translate it, I mean, I like grace upon grace. The idea here is that the grace of God He shows sinners in Christ is far superior to any kind of mercy He shows to sinners anywhere else. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. When God saved Kelly from cancer, I mean, I don't think I had ever like felt grace like that. I just felt so undeserving. When God gave me Kelly and we were married, that was unbelievable grace. When God gave us Roman and Ruby, it was like... That was just, there was no other word to describe it. It was grace. Our home was empty and then boom. But when God gave me Christ, it came from a deep well of grace the likes of which I had never seen. Jesus, y'all, please hear me. Jesus is the full measure of God's grace. I'm incapable of talking about God's grace today without talking about Jesus Christ, which is the problem. I think a lot of times we talk about God's grace, and that's fine. As long as Jesus is the standard and the epitome of God's grace, by which all other grace is measured. Jonathan Adams, y'all knew I had to mention him, said this about God's grace. Man has now a greater dependence on the grace of God than he had before the fall. He depends on the free goodness of God for much more than he did then. Then he depended on God's goodness for conferring the reward of obedience, for God was not obliged to promise and bestow that reward. But now we are dependent on the grace of God for much more. We stand in need of grace not only to bestow glory upon us, but deliver us from hell and eternal wrath. Under the first covenant, we depended on God's goodness to give us the reward of righteousness. Not only now, but we stand in need of God's free and sovereign grace to give us that righteousness. And we stand in need of His grace to pardon our sin and release us from the guilt and the infinite demerit of it. That's what John means when he starts to talk about receiving the fullness of God. It took everything Jesus had to save you. It took His patience, His obedience, His perseverance, His holiness, His righteousness, His love, His wisdom, His power. When we receive Christ, we receive all that God has. Grace upon grace. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. 
In other words, Moses can only show us our need for truth and grace. Only in Jesus Christ does he actually deliver truth and grace. In Hebrews 7.19, I was actually reading this this morning. For the law made nothing perfect. The law was only a shadow of the fullness of God's truth and grace. The law is not living water. The law has no abundance of anything. Simply speaking, Christianity is nothing more than the truth and grace of God in Christ. That's all it is. To know Jesus is to know His truth and grace. That's why every single Sunday at Haynes Creek, if you noticed, what do we do? We confess our sin, and then we read out of what? Truth. We acknowledge truth and grace every single time we meet on Sunday. John Calvin said, Every soul which depends not on God alone is enslaved to Satan. Some of you are going, Dang, Calvin. Truth! I think many people today think that some people need a whole lot of grace and some of us just don't need as much. Y'all better be careful with that. That's not Christianity. It's an either or. Either we will be lavished upon grace by Christ or we will receive the full cup of wrath. This is why truth and grace go together. You can't have one without the other. The more we expose ourselves to the truth of God, the more we expose ourselves to the Scriptures, we find we need God's grace. And the more we find God's grace, the more we love His truth. Therefore, generally, the people who read the Bible the least are the people who think they need God's grace the least. And the people who don't see their need for grace generally don't read the Bible. On a daily basis, God's truth shows Abi Todd that I'm prone to fleshly desires, unbelief, jealousy, covetousness, selfishness, apathy. I need God's grace every single day to believe the gospel. Every single day. Kelly and I finally found a house this week. Right? I can't tell you what the neighborhood's called, and honestly, maybe not even could find it now. But, it, but we have a house. It's real. Um, I told somebody the other day, I feel like right now I'm living in a cube with stairs. Just like every, you know, generally when you're, you feel like you're going somewhere with stairs, you know, the stairs are like so tight, you just kind of, it's just, Pablo Picasso made my house. That's how I describe it. I'm renting, if you didn't know. Um, and the guy who owns it is like Wizard of Oz. I never know where he is. He's like behind a curtain somewhere. <laughs> Venting, hashtag. Okay, um, so <laughs> the uh, I need God, I need grace. But I'll tell you this: it wasn't easy finding a house. I mean, I remember I was over at the Lloyd's house. What was it two Sundays ago? Telling y'all, they were like, "It's down that road." I actually drove down, tried to find some. I mean, there was a couple weeks where we were just like, "No house is good enough." You know, you like a house, and you go in, and somebody you have a conversation with somebody like, "Yeah, it's." That's a great house uh, if you don't like your kid's education. Like, what? Hold on, what? Like, yeah, yeah, well, that area is, you know, they got to go to that school. And you go, hey, we found a family house. Oh, I really like that house. You know, of course, you know, all the transient vagrants in the neighborhood. But if you like it, that's fine. You're like, whoa, hold on. What? What is that? I remember I was talking to. Franklin, Franklin, I told Franklin we really liked the house last week, and Franklin goes, Franklin goes, oh man, I really love that neighborhood. Yeah, uh, 
Lydia and I were, we used to like run around that neighborhood, you know, oh man, it's great. He's like, you know, other than the body they found near the river, that's, that's great. <laughs> Hold on. He wasn't joking either. He literally just sped on into the conversation. I was like, hold up. <laughs> so what I did, I didn't tell my wife because she really liked the neighborhood. And I was like, eh, it's just the one-time thing. <laughs> so then we went out with the Wagstaffs that night. And Carrie was like, yeah, oh, wait, Channing really looked at a house there. I think it's a great time. You know, it's right by the tree farm or whatever. Um, you know, of course, you know, the body they found. but that And, then, and I was like, Carrie, no. No. And Kelly was like, what? And I was like, um... And then I think later on that night I went, baby, they, they weren't murdered there, they just found the body there. <laughs> She's like, that's, no, that's not helping. Okay. So, needless to say, here we are in this endless house search, and I'm just praying every night for God to go, God, give us a home. And you know what? After we finally received a home... Um, God revealed two things to me this week. I think God was saying, I, I did give you a home. I need to be thankful for that. The other thing I was convicted about this week is I think today we only ask for God's grace when we want things and less when we want God. I think we ask for God's grace when we want things and never when we want to fight sin and seek after Him with all of our heart. So that when we get things and people see our things, we go, God's grace. But how sweet it is to meet a brother and sister in Christ and they go, God's grace in Jesus. That is the grace God wants us to celebrate. The full measure of God's grace isn't giving you a job or a house or even a family. The full measure of God's grace is dying for you on the cross and then giving you the faith to believe it and treasure the gospel every single day of your life. That's the full measure of God's grace. I think the men of our church need God's grace every single day to fight apathy, to fight earthly pursuits, and to treasure the gospel in their own wives. You need to pray every single day, God, give me the grace to be a man of integrity and a man about oh, after Jesus' own heart. I think the women of our church need God's grace to fight fleshly desires and to find their sufficiency every single day in Christ, not their husband, not what people tell them, not what the culture says they should like, to find their sufficiency in Him and Him alone. The only way I will believe the gospel tomorrow morning is by God's grace. The truth of God's Word tells me that. See, what Satan is trying to get us to do is just presume that God's grace is just a Pez dispenser that keeps coming out. It came out today. It'll come out tomorrow. Hell is built on presumption. Don't presume upon God. John the Baptist, you know why he came? He came to eliminate presumption. I want us to read verse 18 because I think it's very profound. No one has ever seen God. Stop right there. I just thought of this. What did he say? No one has ever seen God. That means any fanciful account of heaven that you read out of the bookstore at the truck stop is wrong. Continue. 
No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So you know what the point of Jesus is? Jesus didn't come so that you could not read your Bible and go read a book about a six-year-old who tells you about God. Jesus came so that you could look at His glory and see, oh, that's what God's like. You behold the glory of Christ so that you can therefore behold the glory of the Father. This is what Philip didn't understand. Remember, remember Jesus? He's like, Philip, have I not been you that long that you still don't believe? If you know me, you know the Father. If you see my glory, you see the glory of the Father. To see and behold His glory is the supreme honor and joy and blessing we could ever experience in this life or the next. No grace, no glory. I mean, that's the reward in heaven is to finally see God as He is. That's our reward. Remember in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I mean, I want to see Him. And we talk about this all the time. One of my favorite quotes in the entire Bible. Moses says what? Moses just gets down to it. Show me the glory. Just show it to me. Because he gets it. He knows that's the treasure. Moses walked with him as a friend for so long, he finally just said, show me. Do we long for that? Give me your grace so that I can see you and behold you one day. You know, I I think the unrelenting request of the Old Testament is, Lord, we want to see you. And I think by the end of the New Testament, God's answer is, you'll behold the glory of Jesus first. I wanted to end with this this morning. Generally speaking, I think Americans have no understanding of grace whatsoever. We don't really think our sin is that bad, and if we do, we often think that it's not as bad as someone else's. The problem for most Americans is that they expect God to give them grace, and that church is not grace. That's called a demand. I think so many people live upon their works and what they've done for God, that they think that they're going to get to the heaven's gate and instead of begging to get in, they're going to go say, look what I did. Open it up. You know, I had a seminary professor tell this story. He said every once in a while, he'd have an old student who'd come back, who'd be a pastor, come back, and he'd go, hey, this has been on my conscience uh, after years. Usually systematic theology because it was hard. And they go, I just want to let you know, I just got to get this off my chest. Uh, I cheated on one of your tests. And he, he used this extre- instruction for, for the, he, when he would talk about repentance. And Dr. Moore would go, uh, oh, that's fine. I'll, just, I'll put a zero there and you can take it over again. And they go, Wait, well, hold on, what do you mean? And they say, well, you just admitted it. I'm going to give you a zero because that's a no tolerance policy. You can just take it over again. And he'd say the look on their face would go like, what are you talking about? See, what they did was they thought after a a lot of time had passed that he was just going to let them off. They wanted to confess the sin, but they didn't want to live up to the consequences. This week, there was a 94-year-old Nazi war criminal who appealed for mercy to get out of jail. Guy's 94 years old. 
They called him the bookkeeper of Auschwitz. He kept all the names in the extermination camp. We're talking about this guy was in his 30s, maybe even 20s. The dude is shriveled up and almost dead in 94. He just wants to get out of jail. And this German court said no. You know, when I read that, I went... My first thought was, dang, dude's like 94. Something inside of me, just like that seminary student coming back, thought, okay, after, after some time, give a guy a break. And I think we tend to assume that there's a statue of limitations on justice. Ken's back there going, Preach. We think that there's a limit or an expiration date to God's anger and His wrath. Like God's going to let up like some parent who's tired of saying no. This military tribunal, they said, no, no, no. Not Just because you're 94 doesn't take away from the evil and the monstrosity that you performed. And that's the, exactly the kind of cold unrelenting, impartial justice that will rightly fall on every sinner apart from the grace of God. See, see God's going to tell those souls in hell, you are no closer to the end than when you first started. And just because you've been here 2,000 years doesn't take away from the evil of your sin and how much it disgusts me. Hell is unceasing. God's, un- God's justice and righteousness is unrelenting. It is white hot, never diminishing, never letting up, infinitely holy, infinitely pure, falling rightly upon sinful rebels for the rest of time. God's wrath is absolutely unrelenting and bottomless and we deserve to be there. But as Leonce Crump said yesterday, but God... God says the good news is that as full as hell is with the wrath and righteous anger and holiness, Jesus Christ is just as full of truth and grace. Just as unrelenting and infinite and bottomless as hell is with perfect justice, Jesus is more unrelenting, more infinite, more bottomless with perfect love and mercy. For those who have believed in Christ, there is grace upon grace. And we will never find the bottom. He's full. Today, if you're like, man, I've kind of been presuming that God's just going to keep giving it to me because I live in America and I live kind of okay. If you are being convicted this morning by the Holy Spirit, say, I need to beg for His grace. If that's you, come to Jesus who says that He is full of mercy, full of everything. Full of grace. Full of truth. And He promises that it will never run out. And that for those who receive the gospel, we're going to see Him. Imagine for a second what it will be like to see God as He is. Full of truth and grace. Let's pray. Father God, Please just give us a sniff 
Give us a glimmer. Give us a sneak peek. Give us a taste of the grace of heaven in Christ. But Father, don't let us just stop with our personal relationship with You. Let the grace abound in this church with one another. Let the grace abounding that You have shown us in Christ infuse us to the point that people say our names in our church and they think, that's a gracious people. Father, let us live as people of grace. Father, let us live to love and serve and worship You because of the immeasurable grace and truth we have been shown in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all these things we ask in Your Son's name. Amen.